Well, we are in the third week of our Purple Faith series. If you are watching at home online somewhere in the Vancouver area, we'd love to have you come join us in person here on Sunday evenings. At uh, 5, we share a meal together around the tables, and then about 5.40 or so, we try to get into the service. 5, I can't tell what time that clock says, 5.47. So 5.45-ish, I guess. We get into the sermon, but we'd love to have you come join us for a meal and then uh, stick around for our, our teaching series right now. Purple Faith, we've been talking about, you know, how do, we have, how do we have a faith that isn't divisive, a faith that unites? And if you look at the early church, the early church was radically unified, um, they, they, and that was a core characteristic of the church, a key tenet of the church, because Jesus prayed that for the church early on, that they would be unified. They would be one, is what Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, make them one just as you and I are one. And uh, so that's one of the reasons we do events with the other churches, like we're doing the Ash Wednesday service on March 2nd. If you're watching at home online, we'd love to have you come join us, 6.30 p.m., March 2nd, Ash Wednesday, with uh, a couple of other churches here in the area to kick off the Lent season, which is a season of preparation for Easter a lot of repentance and reminding ourselves of, of the story of the cross and the gospel in general. But this week, we're kind of we're finishing up the introduction. I know that's probably making you roll your eyes because this is a third week of introduction. And uh, I used to do, when we did series back in the day, I would, it was very common to do two or three weeks of introduction to the series. I guess it's just how my mind works. You, know, you typically think like one sermon or like part of a sermon, and then you get into the real, real content. Not here. We do not skimp on introductions at 6A Church. So uh, you can be thankful for that. Well, not long after I moved out here to the Pacific Northwest from the Midwest in the summer of 2000, I was at a Christmas dinner up at my grandma and grandpa's farm, which is now where we live with our family. My grandpa and his brother were at the kitchen table where we eat our meals, arguing about politics. One was red and one was blue of these brothers. Let's just say um, that things got loud. That's how we'll say it. Things got loud. Both of them were hard of hearing, both of them well into their 80s at this point in time. Hard of hearing and both of them adamant about their stance on this issue. They went back and forth and back and forth for some time, but eventually it was time for them to come home, time to leave and for time for Uncle Floyd to go back to his home. You know what happened when, I, when Uncle Floyd got up and left? They stood up and gave each other the pat on the back and, and went on with their life. They just went back to normal. No one stormed out. There was no door slamming that went on. They didn't part ways. They didn't cut their visit short because of their disagreement about politics. You might even say they had fun in the arguing about politics from the way it looked. It looked like they were enjoying themselves. And from what I understand, talking with family, that was a fairly common occurrence for, for Grandpa and Uncle Floyd to argue from time to time. Well, not long after this, we were at my great uncle's house, 
Uncle Floyd's house or great, great, I don't, second uncle twice removed. I don't know what it is. He's my, what is it? See, my dad's uncle, right? See, my, my, my grandpa's brother, so my dad's uncle. What is that? My great uncle? Second uncle? I don't know. All right. We'll just leave it. Distant relative, or somewhat distant relative. It was for his birthday, and uh, some, I think it was Floyd's birthday. And you know who was there? My grandpa. My grandpa was also there to celebrate my Uncle Floyd's birthday. I don't remember any political arguments that day, but a few years later, my Uncle Floyd passed away, and I went up to visit my grandpa a week or so after the funeral, and he lamented to me that he couldn't understand a lot of the pastor's remarks because of the acoustics in their sanctuary, and I did my best to fill him in on what I could remember. For some reason, they were able throughout their lives to argue back and forth about politics and not allow their politics to become divisive between the two of them. Well, we just shared a meal here together. In the past 20 years, meals together with other people have been in decline. The frequency of family dinners in the last 20 years has declined by 33%. And 62% of parents actually wish that they had more family dinners throughout the course of the week. Americans spend a higher percentage of their food on restaurants now compared to buying food for home. 50.3% of their food budget goes to restaurants. That was 26% of their food budget in 1970 and 41% in 2010. So we're spending more money buying food at restaurants than we are buying food for our homes. But there are benefits of sharing meals together as a family around the table. Kids and teens who share a family dinner three times per week are less likely to be overweight, more likely to eat healthy food, perform better academically, less likely to engage in risky behaviors such as drugs and alcohol and sexual activity, and they have better relationships with their parents. So there's a lot of benefit to having meals at least three times a week as a family. More frequent family dinners are related to fewer emotional and behavioral problems, greater emotional well-being, more trusting and helpful behaviors towards others, and higher life satisfaction, according to the Journal of Adolescent Health in April of 2012. According to a UK study, research has revealed that Uh, The more often people eat with others, the more likely they are to feel happy and satisfied with their lives. The more likely people eat with others, the more likely they are to feel happy and satisfied with their lives. 76% of those questioned in the survey thought that sharing a meal was a good way to bring people closer together. A third of weekday evening meals, though, are eaten in isolation in Great Britain, and the average adult eats 10 meals out of 21 alone every single week. More than two-thirds of those questioned, 69%, have never shared a meal with any of their neighbors. 30% had never eaten with a community group, 37%. A fifth of people said it had been more than six months since they had shared a meal with their parents. 
75% of respondents recognized that making an effort to see someone more often was best done by sharing a meal. So we understand the importance of it on one side, and then on the other side, we're not willing to invest in the time that it takes to do it. Professor Robin Dunbar of the uh, University of Oxford's Experimental Psychology Department said, the study suggests that social eating has an important role in the facilitation of social bonding and that communal eating may have even evolved as a mechanism for humans to do just that. We know from previous studies that social networks are important in combating mental and physical illness. A significant portion of responders felt that having a meal together was an important way of making or reinforcing these social networks. In these increasingly fraught times, they continue, when community cohesion is ever more important, making time for and joining in communal meals is perhaps the single most important thing we can do, both for our health and well-being and for that of the wider community. Sharing meals together is very important. There's a lot of research now to back that up. That's one of the reasons why we do it together, because there's something that happens. I would argue there's something spiritual and even mystical that happens when you share a meal with someone, when you're sitting around a table eating, you let your guard down, you're more likely to open up to people. I think there's something great that happens when we share a meal, which is why we do it every single week, because that's how the early church operated. They shared a meal together as often as they gathered. It wasn't just bread and wine that they shared for communion. It was also the meal. So meals together are important. My second... My second statistical area here to set us up. In November of 2021, Generation Labs did a survey of 850 college students nationwide here in America. This is what they found. They asked this question, college students who would not blank someone who voted for the opposing presidential candidate. So they asked them to fill in the blank, would not blank someone so the first blank was go out on a date with. 71% of one side said they would not go out on a date with. 31% of the other side said they would not go out on a date with someone who voted for the opposing presidential candidate. College students said they would not shop at or support a business of someone who voted for the opposing presidential candidate. 41% on one side and 7% on the other. College students would not be friends with someone who voted for the opposing presidential candidate. 37% on one side, 5% on the other. And lastly, students would not work for someone who voted for the opposing presidential candidate. 30% on one side, 7% on the other. Won't have relationships with people who vote for the opposing president. Number three. A research article published in October of 2020 sought to answer the question, are politically diverse Thanksgiving dinners shorter than politically uniform ones? What do you think? Are politically diverse Thanksgiving dinners shorter than politically uniform Thanksgiving dinners? What would you guess? Yeah. 
You're right. They found, listen to this, politically diverse Thanksgiving dinners were 35 to 70 minutes shorter than politically uniform ones, representing a 14 to 27% reduction in overall dinner duration. On average, they were 24 minutes shorter than uniform Thanksgiving dinners. So 20% shorter because of diverse political beliefs. My grandpa passed away in 2014. But I have to say that even if he had been rambling on about something I didn't care about, I would love to have 24 minutes with him. He wasn't perfect. He had a lot of, a lot of room for improvement like any of us do, but, you know, would love to have another 24 minutes with my grandpa. Now, I would admit some of those 24 minutes would be to ask him, why did you do this in the house? Because there's a lot of things in the house I would want to ask him about, like, why did you, why did you do things this way? But then I would want to know some other things about moving here and so on and so forth. Somewhere along the way, our political beliefs have become more important to us than everything else in life, including our relationships with some of the most dearly loved people we'll ever know. And I have to ask, what the elephonky are we doing? That's a word I made up, like a curse word out of the combination of elephant and donkey. I thought that would be a good curse word. We can make a new curse word, the elephonky. What the elephonky are we doing? I get that our uncles, our aunts, our grandpas might say some stupid things at Thanksgiving dinners. Might say inappropriate things. It's not right. But does it make it right to sever the relationship with them? I mean, maybe what they need is our contrasting point of view, shared in a gracious way in the context of an unconditional relationship to help them see things a little bit differently. But I've got a question to, to set up the rest of our time. We see the importance of sharing a meal together. We see the unlikelihood of sharing meals with people we disagree with. But let me ask us a pointed question. Could we, could you sit down for a meal with someone who strongly disagrees with your position on a given topic? Are you able to listen to someone who thinks differently than you without looking for counterpoints to their argument and just try to understand what they believe and why? Could you share just a meal and seek to understand where they're coming from, how they got there, and be able to share the same with them if the opportunity arose? Could you sit down for a meal with someone with strongly different point of view than yourself? Well, the Bible is full of imagery around tables. There's a ton of talk about tables throughout the Old Testament. There's a huge focus on the family table throughout the Old Testament. But there's also a lot of things that happen around tables in the New Testament. And we're going to talk about some of those for the rest of our time. Jesus actually shared a lot of meals around tables. He spent a lot of times at meals sitting down with people who were all across the spectrum 
from religious leaders of the society, and we know how we felt about a lot of their points of view because he con- contradicted them a lot of times. Jesus had meals with the outcasts of, so- of society. He sat down at tables with tax collectors and sinners so often that he actually got a reputation of being one who ate with tax collectors and sinners, which was a bad reputation to have if you're a Jewish leader. Well, one of those meals, you can see this in Luke chapter 14 if you want to open up your Bibles. One of those meals with the Pharisee, one of the rulers, the rule enforcers of the religious leaders, which was the Pharisees. Jesus is at a meal with the Pharisee. And while he's at this meal with the Pharisee, he shares this parable. Luke chapter 14, verse 15. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant who had been sent out to collect all the people who had been invited to the banquet came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. So there were people that had been invited to this banquet, this big fancy banquet that had been taken a very long time apparently to be prepared. They had received the invitation, and I guess, you know, maybe they got bored in the meantime waiting for the banquet to finally happen. And when it came time for the banquet, they made excuses. I did a sermon on this years ago and, and talked about it was like a, a farm and a car and, and a bride. I would, co- I would come. I want to come. But, you know, I just bought a farm and I, I got go, to go check it out. I'd like to come, but, you know, I just got a new car and I got to go take it for a drive so I can't come to the banquet. Well, I'd come, but I just got married and want to spend some time with my wife. Maybe these excuses were legitimate. Maybe they weren't just trying to come up with a reason not to go. But maybe they just didn't feel like it. Maybe they didn't feel like taking the time to go to the banquet. Maybe they didn't like the host's position on owning vacation properties and the damage it had done to local economies. Maybe they had plans to binge watch Stranger Things. I don't know. 
But this was a banquet they shouldn't have missed, one that they'll regret not going to for the rest of their lives. And if we catch the point of the parable for much longer than their lives. Why are we missing out on some of these meals? Why are we making these excuses like some made in Jesus' story? Why are we making excuses to miss out on Thanksgiving meals, excuses that we might regret for the rest of our lives? Are we making decisions right now based on puffed-up political views that will cost us time with the loved ones that we'll never get back? Are we elevating ourselves and belittling the host of the meal because we're convinced that we are right and they are wrong? Could we be possibly disqualifying ourselves from God's eternal feast by the way we're mistreating those we refuse to share a meal with? And you might be thinking, okay, I can, I can agree that sharing a meal is important. I can see that, that meals are probably important to Jesus. He spent a lot of time with meals. But, but honestly, how do we share a meal with someone that we disagree with? How do we share a meal with someone who adamantly disagrees with me and someone with whom I adamantly disagree? Well, I've got a couple of practical ideas I do want to share. First, don't invite someone to a meal to try to correct their thinking. That's a bad idea. Is anyone familiar with the idea of psychological resistance? It's the first time? All right, well, let me explain it to you, Alex. I appreciate that. Psychological resistance is our brain's response to any threat to our freedom. So anytime we feel like our freedom is being threatened, we will start to resist, which includes anytime someone suggests or tries to force us to do something against our will. Does that sound familiar? Sound kind of like rebellion, right? Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do with my life. You, who are you to tell me what to do? This is my life. It sounds kind of like Genesis 3, right? But the more individualistic our society gets, which it is getting incredibly individualistic, we actually talked about that on the men's podcast this last week. No, that's this coming week. This coming week, it's coming up on the men's podcast about being individualistic. But the more individualistic our society gets, the more rebellious we are becoming as a society. And the more meals that we eat alone, by ourselves, away from other people, the more closed off we will be to the lives and ideas of others who think differently than we do. Have you ever had this experience? Someone asks you, for advice on a problem they're dealing with, got a situation they're going through, and you give them the advice that they asked for, and then they go and do the exact opposite. You ever had that happen? I've had that happen a lot of times, many times as a pastor. Someone will say they want advice, but they weren't really looking for advice because they really just came to me looking for confirmation or permission of what they already wanted to do. And then when I went a different direction, 
than what they wanted. It didn't work out. And then, well, if they do something, you know, that I, that I suggest, well, then they can blame me for it. One of the worst things about that that happens is that down the road, after, they, after what they tried to do, what they wanted to do doesn't work out, they actually try your advice. Anyone have that happen? Like they go off on their own direction and do their own thing, and then they figure out that doesn't work, so they actually come back and try your advice, but then they claim that it was their idea, act like it was all something that they came up with. <laughs> happens a lot, right? Why do you think that is? Psychological resistance. It's rebellion. We want to do things our own way. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want anyone telling us, telling us how to live our lives. We want the credit for all of our successes. And at the same time, we want to be able to blame anyone else for all of our failures. You can see this in our world. Stop smoking campaigns actually cause people to want to smoke more. <laughs> it's true. When, 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 when there are stop smoking campaigns that, that go on in society, it actually increases smoking. Smoking uh, or cigarette sales go up. Anti-racism campaigns tend to increase racist behaviors. And from my own personal experience, trying to coerce people to do things that are for their own benefit, like reading their Bibles, praying, and journaling, actually causes people to do just the opposite. As a species, we've got a big don't-tell-me-what-to-do complex, and the harder we try to force people into compliance, the more they resist. That's anywhere. That's everywhere. Anywhere you tell some, try to tell someone what to do, they want to do something else. That's a human problem. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's something you were going to do, but if someone asks you to do it, all of a sudden you don't want to do it anymore, right? <laughs> Right. <laughs> so if you have a meal with someone who disagrees with you, don't try to coerce them into your way of thinking. Don't correct their thinking. But a meal is important, right? How do we, we need to have meals like Jesus did with people who think differently than us. Je um, probably all of Jesus' meals were, were populated by people who had vastly different points of view than he did. So, so how do we do it? Well, I want to talk just a little more science, and then we're going to start pushing here towards uh, the closing Scripture and wrap this all up. There's something that uh, David J.P. Phillips calls the angel's cocktail. This is three chemicals in our brain that are released. Dopamine, oxytocin, oxytocin and endorphins. Dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins. Endorphins are released while we eat and exercise. Oxytocin, anyone know the nickname for oxytocin? 
What? Cuddle hormone, yeah. It's referred to as the cuddle hormone. It's released with friendship and intimacy. It's also released in music, talking. So I'm giving you, I'm giving you all oxytocin right now just by talking. And you can thank me for that later. Dopamine, oxytocin, oxytocin, and endorphins. Oxytocin is released with food as well, as well as kindness and other things. And dopamine, which is called the molecule of more, all at once is more, 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 is released when our brain expects a reward, which comes with many things like food, shopping, relationships, and a host of other enjoyable behaviors. This is the angel's cocktail. There are other, other things that, you know, fear and anxiety that you can create in people's mind that actually make them resistant to you, like scaring people. Um, he used the illustration, like he shouted in the middle, but I don't, want to, I don't want to give you guys an increased level of cortisol right now. I want you to be open to my ideas, so I'm not going to scare anyone. Because when, when someone scares you, you get an increased level of cortisol, and then you shut down to other ideas. But what if the answer to the division in our culture was as simple as sharing a meal with people, building relationships with them because they're humans, refusing to reduce those who think differently than we do to some sort of less than human creature, and sharing stories? What if it was that simple? What if all we needed to do was have a meal and just share stories with the people we're eating with? This angel's cocktail is not just released when you're sharing food with someone. It's actually released when you tell stories. The same three chemicals, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins, are released when you share a story. So what if we shared a meal with someone, we asked them to share stories about their lives? And then if and when politics come up, because they probably will, what if we sought to understand why they think that way? What if we asked them questions about their belief and, and, and how they came to believe that? What is the story that led them to believe this way? And maybe they might ask us some questions about our beliefs and how we came to believe what, what we believe. And maybe we could just share some stories back and forth even about such difficult things as political topics. I grew up in southeast Ohio with emphasis on the south. It's very close to the bottom of Ohio. You know, Ohio's kind of got that shape, almost like a heart. It's down here in the point of the heart, close to West Virginia. Which is probably why most people in southeast Ohio drink sweet tea. Anyone like sweet tea? Yeah, good. No? Oh. Well, most people in Southeast Ohio, not all, but most, like drinking sweet tea. If you go a little further north in Ohio, get up around Columbus, kind of central Ohio, and if you get into Indiana and central Indiana, people, there's going to, like if you go to a church function in, in that part of the state, in the middle part of the state, there'll be a tank of unsweetened tea and a tank of sweet tea for you to drink at all church events. It was always there, no matter what. But in southeast Ohio, most of the time, it was 
sweet tea at our church events. Well, at that time, when I was growing up, and this is the late 90s, I was working at Cardo's Pizza. At that time, the only bottled tea you could get was Lipton's bottled tea, and it was not sweet. It was unsweetened. There, were, there weren't yet any, there was, there was brisk, it was technically sweetened, but it also had lemon in it, and I just didn't, I didn't like the lemon. I drank that if I had to, but I really just wanted sweet tea. That's what I wanted. So one night, while I was working at Cardo's delivering pizzas, I was the delivery boy there for a long time, I had a bottle of that unsweetened tea, but I'd forgotten to put the sugar in it at home like I would usually do. But then I thought, well, it's okay, because at this pizza shop, you know, we make dough, and while we're making the dough, you need two ingredients besides flour and yeast. You also need sugar and salt in, in every, every dough recipe, right? So we've got sugar at the, at the pizza shop, and I thought, okay, well, I'll just I'll get some of this. So I go, to the, I go to the bin, and I take a scoop of sugar, and I add it to my tea, and everyone's just kind of looking at me. And I thought they were judging me because of the amount of sugar I was adding to my tea. Like, they're just saying, what, like, that's way too much sugar. What's wrong with you? But I put the sugar in the tea, and then... I shake it because it's a lot easier to, to mix something if you can shake it as opposed to stirring it with a spoon. So I shake it up really good. I probably spend like a minute shaking it because it takes a while to work it in, right? It takes a while for the sugar to kind of break down and become a part of the liquid. So I do that. And I open it up. There's something wrong with my sweet tea. You see, at the pizza shop, they have two containers that were identical and unlabeled that sat next to each other on the shelf. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you look at sugar and salt, they look pretty much the same. So I had taken a big scoop of salt and put it in my tea shaking it up real good, and I took this big gulp. I mean, just big gulp. And that's why everyone was looking at me weird. That's why everyone was saying, like, what are you doing, Lindner? What's, what's wrong with you? Why are you putting salt in your tea? And, of course, I went and spat the tea out the back door. I just assaulted the tea. That's right. So... What's the point of that story? The point of that story is if I did a decent job telling that story, I was just generous enough to give you a hit of dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins in your brain. The laughing, if anyone laughed, you got endorphins in your brain. That's one of the things that happens when we get endorphins is we laugh. So you can thank me for the endorphins later. <clears throat> if we share stories with people while we're eating meals... We actually can make a deep, meaningful connection with them. I don't know if you ever listen to podcasts, but I've listened to podcasts for years. I used to listen to this podcast called Church Tech Talk. It's not on the air anymore, but it was on the air back in the early, you know, mid-2000s, like 2005 or so until like, you know, 2010 or something like that. 
It was a, a church tech podcast of guys in, in Kentucky, like two hours away from my home at this big mega church, and they were always talking about the things they were doing at their churches tech-wise, and it was something that I listened to to learn from. But I discovered these guys were talking about their lives all the time. They were talking about themselves, their ministry, and all this, you know, their families and all this thing. So that over, over time, I thought, I, like, I felt like I knew these guys just because they're talking about and tell, telling their stories on a weekly basis. So much so that I thought, one of these trips I go back to Ohio, I should drive over to the church and look them up. But then I realized that's like, it's crazy. It's kind of stalkerish. Like, they don't know who I am, but I feel like I know them because of the stories they've told about them, their families. And we had a connection, or at least from my end, we had a connection because of their story. But connections, when someone tells their story, makes it a lot harder to hate that person, right? Because stories make things personal. They make us personal. We go from being these political machines that are, that are spewing out political jargon to being people who have lived a life. And we're talking with other people who have lived a life, and we share stories about how we've lived our lives. Previous generations seem to understand this. They seemed to have a relational grit that we don't have today. I know there were divisions in families that churches and families were split, like the Mason-Dixon line and Cain and Abel. It's been going on for as long as there have been people. But oftentimes, especially in Appalachia, there was a loyalty that's really hard to find in contemporary society. There's faithfulness, patience, and endurance that seem to have been erased from our modern definition of love and replaced with fulfillment of personal preferences. And I've thought a lot about why things have changed the way they have. Maybe it's just as simple as the fact that they shared more meals together. I mean, if you grew up, you know, in the 40s and 50s, I'm sure you probably ate a lot of meals around the table. We ate meals around the table growing up almost every night. We try to eat meals almost every night as a family now, at least five nights a week. Maybe it's because they had to go through things together. You know, they fought harder to survive, right? They had to fight through the Great Depression and multiple world wars. Maybe it's because they weren't so busy that they had more time to talk to one another. Maybe it's because their devices didn't demand their attention 24 hours a day. I don't know if you've heard this, but Netflix's official Twitter account on April 17th, 2017 actually said, sleep is my greatest enemy. They didn't, Netflix didn't say YouTube or other streaming services are my greatest enemy, but sleep is my greatest enemy. And Netflix could tweet this probably because YouTube and Facebook and Twitter have already defeated the other enemy to Netflix, which was relationships. It doesn't seem like maybe I'm kind of making too big of a deal out of a meal. 
about a sitting down and sharing a meal with someone. I don't think I am because biblically, everything in Christianity is kind of pointing towards this great big meal. Isaiah talked about it in chapter 25. He says, A feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, talking about a meal that's off in the future. And then in Revelation chapter 19, we read this, verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is almost certainly the banquet that Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 14. This great feast that you did not want to miss. The people made excuses for not being at. This great multitude is the same great multitude that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, right after the mention of the 144,000 that everyone gets confused about, talks about this great multitude. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. This great multitude that is sitting down at the feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the marriage between the bride and the bridegroom, is from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. In other words, a very diverse group of people, a representation of all of humanity from around the globe. This was not a wedding feast of everyone who agreed on everything politically. Instead, this was a group of people who were wearing white robes. These white robes, John says, stand for the righteous acts of God's holy people. The white robes were for those who had been washed in the blood of the Lamb and are wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon says, These are those who are purified, victorious, and at rest in Christ. In other words, we're not at war with Christ. We're not enemies of God. 
But those who wear the white robes are purified, victorious, and at rest with God. And scripturally, white is the color of joy and resurrection. In the church calendar, there are, there are colors that represent each season of the church year. Lent is often represented by purple. But then at the resurrection, we change from the color purple to white. And then once Jesus is resurrected from the dead, everything is white because that's the color of joy and resurrection. This is what Christianity is pointing to. This is what our faith is pointing to. Like the, the pinnacle moment, kind of our entrance into all of eternity will be celebrated by this feast, by sitting down at a table with all kinds of people from all over the world, throughout all of history, on all different sides of every political spectrum you can imagine. People sitting down at this big, big table in the big, big house who have been made new in Christ. No one got that reference? Big, big table. Lots and lots of room. Right? Or big, big house. Big, big table. Lots and lots of food. All right. Oh, didn't like it. <laughs> oh, okay. Big table, big feast. Big yard where you can play football. But this, was, this is a group of people who have been made new in Christ, not who were finally able to ascend the mountain and become pure because of their own beliefs, political stances, and religion, but those who have been made righteous by Jesus alone. If that is what everything is pointing to in our faith, if everything is looking forward to this great feast, this great moment where we're sitting down at the table with, with Jesus himself and we're joined together for all eternity, why not start now? Like, why not just start now preparing for what we know is coming? And what if... What if there is someone who has a seat at that table and the only way for them to take their seat at that table is if we invite them to our table here and now. And it's by us inviting them to our table that they actually open up to the idea of God entirely. So what if we started sharing meals together a little more intentionally? Yes, we share a meal every week here at 6-8 Church, and I think that's a great start. But what if we started working to have meals with people who are different than us, people who think differently than we do, people outside our normal social circles? And what if by sharing these meals and sharing stories and just talking and being humans, we could actually start to change the way things are working in the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for food. 
I thank you that you've created something that we can enjoy like we did this evening. Thank you that we can enjoy fellowship sitting around the table and that we can eat food and tell stories and check in on one another. I thank you for this great way that you've made things to work. I thank you that you designed us in such a way that we actually benefit from such things like meals and food and eating together. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to look for ways, whether it's sharing meals or other ideas, that we can actually sit down with people who think differently than us and share stories and humanize one another. That we can stop participating in the dehumanization that goes on online and with so much political arguing, but that we can actually start to bring the humanity back into the human race and we can acknowledge that we are both people made in the image of God, as we're going to talk about next week. I pray, Father, that you would just give us the courage to start having some of these conversations, not courage to argue, not to be emboldened to take a stronger stance on our point of view, but to be to have the courage to actually care about the people we're talking to, ask about their journey, their story, what led them to the, to the point that they believe what they do. And through this, I pray, Father, that you would start to tear down walls that have been built between people who think differently and start to open up not just methods of communication, but the opportunity for relationships to be forged amongst diverse groups of people that through these relationships you might see people come into your kingdom and take their seat at the table in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.